0: Upon marking the song that's been asked that we mark, we'll turn our attention for the next few moments to a lesson I've entitled, The Fullness of Time. You may take note that the lesson text, drawn from Galatians 4, verse number 4, had said, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. And upon reading that, perhaps one would have a number of thoughts to cross the mind as, What, for instance, does Paul exactly mean? When by inspiration he said, In the fullness of time God sent forth his Son. What suggestions, what implications, what truths, in fact, are available from that little wording? This opening slide will, in fact, I hope, bring before each of us some questions, some of which we will address over the course of the lesson tonight. Isn't it needed a very faith building exercise to reflect on the movement of God's activity through time. It's often the case that in the moment we have a difficult time seeing exactly the way in which God's fingerprints bring about His will. But yet sometimes, 10, 20 years later, we can see, perhaps, just exactly what came to fruition. Now, the Old Testament is very clear in some ways. The children of Israel found themselves on occasion in some very difficult spots. They might well have asked, Why is God permitting this? And then sometime later, it would become evident through the work of one of the prophets as to exactly the benefit that came out of it. For you and me tonight, what about this rather interesting question? What about the Lord's coming? Did He come at a particular time for a particular reason? Could He have come ten years earlier? Might He have come a hundred years earlier? Would it have been possible if He had arrived a thousand years earlier? would all have been the same? Could He have come a thousand years later than He did? Those are rather momentous questions, it seems to me. To ask it somewhat differently is the way I've asked it on the slide. Why did the Lord come when He did? Now you and I know from our perspective now that was approximately 2,000 years ago. There is much to be said, and we'll try to develop several considerations this evening one of which shall be this. What's the meaning of that phrase, the fullness of time? And so the next slide will begin our journey. There will be several points I will invite you to consider with me, not the least of which is the first observation, which will cast a spotlight upon the nature of that verse we just noted a moment ago. So may we note it again. Paul stated rather directly to the church at Galatia, Quite frankly, that group of congregations in the Galatian area. But when, note the adverb, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Now, the latter parts of the verse are rather familiar to us. Made of a woman, to be sure. He was born of Mary. But we also know He was born under the law, under the Mosaic Judaistic system, the system beneath which the Master Himself was born. But what about the first part of the verse? When the fullness of time was come, God sent. So the opening part of that verse is a clause that provides a description of when God sent. When did God send Him? In the fullness of time. That would suggest, if you'll note the meaning of the word, the word fullness, which occurs in the King James translation, literally means the completeness. It means the fulfillment. In essence, it means the right time. To state that somewhat differently, that would suggest there were some preparatory matters that needed to be in place before which and not until which Jesus would come. In other words, He would not come until those matters were completed. That would suggest He came at exactly the time heaven decreed it to be. He could not have come a hundred years earlier. He could not have come a thousand years earlier, nor could He come a thousand years later. This was when all things were ready. Another verse that seems to have a rather strong bearing on this is in Romans the 5th chapter, where there in the 6th verse, Paul makes this statement. He highlights the fact, speaking again about Jesus and His work and His redemptive activity that He put forth. Paul on that occasion said that we each are blessed and benefited by it, but he put it this way, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Due time? That phrase, due time, as you can see on the slide, it literally means the appointed time, the proper time. Now, all of that begs an interesting question. As you and I read through the Old Testament, we know, of course, the last book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi, the 39th and final book. Malachi was written about 430 B.C. Jesus wasn't born until about 5 B.C. Thus, there was about 425 years between when the last Old Testament book was written and when the Master Himself was born on this planet. Now we've just learned He could not have come at the time Malachi wrote. Some might wonder, why didn't Jesus just come when the last Old Testament book was just completed? So that there was one seamless chronological movement. But we've just now learned, based on the fullness of time, the Lord couldn't have come then. It wasn't the right time. All things weren't ready. What transpired, I wonder, between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening moments of the New Testament, what happened in that 430 years, roughly, that paved the way, made things ready, and made the timing right for the Master to come. For the most part, that will be the thrust of our lesson this evening. And so we'll look at a number of those points. The second observation will be the consideration of this. I would invite you to think about captivity from the perspective of Babylon. Now I point that out for this reason... You and I well recall that the people of the Old Testament, the Hebrews, the Jews if you please, they had a very serious problem with idolatry. Despite the fact that God particularly told them, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images the first two of the Ten Commandments. You'll notice then that those messages were clearly and unmistakably given. And yet how often do we see God's people falling into idolatry, turning their attention to the pursuits and the matters which were evil in the sight of God, and they did it anyway. At this point, how does Babylon enter this discussion? The Old Testament is rather clear in reminding us one of the prime reasons that God sent His people into Babylonian captivity was because of their idolatry. Their sin of idolatry. Now, I've invited you to notice uh, toward the bottom of that slide several passages that highlight the seriousness and God's reason for the captivity. Now, Jeremiah had reminded them it was going to last 70 years. You're not going to captivity for just a year or two. It'll be seven decades. Twice in the book of Jeremiah, that point is abundantly made plain. But might you notice with me texts such as 2 Chronicles thirty four twenty five, When God revealed the reasons why He sent them and how the list was this, you have not given your attention to me. You fall into idolatry. You have worshipped and served other gods. And in so doing, now I'm going to send you away so that you can learn a little bit about the evil of idolatry and somewhat cleanse yourself from it by understanding what evil it brings. Not only in Second Chronicles, but in Jeremiah one sixteen, God through the prophet Jeremiah told the people, here's one of the reasons I'm sending you into Babylon, because of your idolatry. I'll mention all that to say, there was thus a serious problem amongst God's people that they were given to idolatry before the captivity. What about after it? After the 70 years were over, and God did permit them to return under the wonderful decree of Cyrus, the Persian monarch. Were they as given to Babylon? Were they as given to idolatry after their return, as they had been before? And the Old Testament seems rather strong about this. Although there were isolated pockets of idolatry, it wasn't nearly the major nationalistic problem that it had been. So notice it seems as if one of the wonderful benefits of that captivity was it helped them at least appreciate the evil of idolatry and turn their attention from it and give their devotion wholeheartedly to God. And that would tend to be the case. And so that helped prepare a people of pure heart and a people of appreciable understanding for the message and the demands of the God of heaven. May I say that there are warnings even for us today in continuation of that idea. First John 5, 21 reminds all of us, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That can still be an issue for you and me today, in principle just like it was for them. So one of the issues that seemingly was very beneficial, preparing a people ready for the Lord to come, was to in fact remove some of the consideration from their mind of idolatry. What about the second thing that happened in those 430 years? You may have often wondered about this. When you and I read through the New Testament, we find frequent reference to synagogues. They're all over the New Testament. And yet, when you read the Old Testament, you find, for the most part, not one single reference. Now, I realize full well the word synagogue does occur in Psalm 74, 8. But the reference to that, in usage of synagogue, is not the same as the New Testament. So the idea is this, if they're all over the New Testament, and they aren't mentioned at all in the Old, where did they come from? They had to have started in those 430 years. The essence of the synagogue, the consideration of it, where did it come from and why? Well, that again takes us to the captivity Remember, when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies overran Jerusalem and overran Judea, one of the things they destroyed was the temple. The wonderful Jewish temple, the one that Solomon had built, the one that was so ornate and so extravagant, and the one the people gave great attention to. 2 Kings 25.9 reminds us that the Babylonians burned it. They destroyed it. They brought it in essence to ruins. And yet that was the place of Jewish worship. It was the place that the Jews, again, they had to go three times a year. The Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Passover, all of it. And yet suddenly they had nowhere to go. The temple was no more. What did they do instead? Over that period of 430 years, there arose these synagogues which were Jewish places of worship. It was thus places in most any Jewish community thus would have one. And so is it any wonder when we arrive at the New Testament, we find Paul preaching all across the Roman Empire. The first place he would go to in any community was the synagogue because there was a ready group of people who should have had an ear for the God of heaven and His message. And so Paul could go there to find a ready audience interested supposedly in the things of God's will for them. But now we see the synagogues arose, you see, because the time was right. Now there was a place wherein the Jews would assemble in all the communities in which they dwelled. And thus Paul would go to those places. And so the book of Acts speaks about the journeys that Paul took and the synagogues to which he'd go preaching the wonderful messages of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. You may notice on that slide, at the very bottom of it, I make reference to the fact that synagogues are mentioned often in the Bible 69 times, and 68 of them in the New Testament. As I mentioned earlier, the one Old Testament reference, again, is not to the synagogues that you and I would understand, because that was written in the time of David, which was well over 600 years before the synagogues themselves actually developed. Isn't it interesting to see the fullness of time, how that piece by piece things were then put into existence so that the gospel message could be shed abroad so abundantly and with much greater ease. What about observation number four? We've seen idolatry stamped out for the most part. We've seen the existence of the synagogues. What about language? Language. One of the first things that likely would occur to you and me, if we think about the spreading of the gospel in terms of evangelism, is the reality of a common language. You and I know today, we can't send a missionary somewhere unless there's some kind of translator available. People in foreign languages, they can't understand English. And yet, think about the circumstance that prevailed when the Lord Himself came to this earth and in the years shortly thereafter. On that slide, let's develop some of those points. We all know that the New Testament was written in Greek. The 27 books of the New Testament were written in Koine Greek. Now, that language is not one that's native to you or me. So if we were to see a Bible written in original Greek, we would for the most part be helpless. We wouldn't be able to read it. We wouldn't be able to appreciate the wonderful messages contained in it. Well, translate that idea to the first century. Here were people all over the world and the gospel needed to go to every one of them. And they were in places that spoke their various languages. What if that happened not to be the language in which the Bible, to their native consideration, was written? That comes to bring me to this observation. That Corne Greek language was such that it had been spread by the efforts of Alexander the Great. One of those empires that we find mentioned in the book of Daniel... You remember the four worldwide empires that Daniel had foretold would come? Following Babylon, there was to be the Medo-Persians. And following them was to be the Greeks. And following them was to be the Romans. But think about that third grouping. Arguably the greatest king to that time the world had ever known was Alexander the Great. He was prolifically successful. His armies conquered everything in sight all the way to modern-day India. That's amazing. Think about the territory underneath his rule and his reign. And yet, Alexander loved the Greek culture. And everywhere he went, and every place he conquered, he would establish Greek culture and the Greek language. Therefore, when the Lord came, and when He gave that great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, the Greek language, you see, had been spread abroad. They knew Greek. Alexander had spread it so wonderfully across the world, all the known world at the time. And therefore, with a Bible written in Greek, with those parchments written in Greek, folks would be able to read it everywhere. They would have access then to the same wonderful message from heaven. Are we beginning to see the wonderful fullness of time? Idolatry stamped out for the most part. The characteristic of language... The understanding, you see, that went with the fullness of time. The Lord came, you see, at the right time. As you close that particular slide with me, consider one of the most notable translations of the ancient scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament were translated into Greek. In that translation, we often call the Septuagint. That's the one the Lord most often quoted from. That's the one the New Testament writers most often quoted from. They would quote the Septuagint. And thus, when we see Jesus often saying, Thus it is written, he was quoting from the Septuagint. And his hearers would appreciate those messages and understand the nature of that which was being said. A common language. So now when Paul could go into the various parts of the Roman Empire and preach in Greek, he would have an audience that would understand it. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a very comforting thing to see that God did all things well, bringing about the fullness of time and the arrival of His Son, when the language circumstance was right, when the characteristic of idolatry had been stamped out correctly, and of course when the features on this next one were also put exactly in place. Philosophy. Now, the ancient world was such that there were a number of interesting ideas philosophically. But there were some who rose to the surface to be so very notable. Let's speak about philosophy, at least in connection to the Word of God, for just a moment. The Greek Empire was well known for its golden age of philosophy. And even to this day, we often in schools ask our students to learn something about that golden age of Grecian philosophy we asked them to learn somewhat about Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, the three most famous Greek philosophers. On the slide, I have very briefly asked you to notice in quickness some of that which came from them. Now, I would also mention there certainly were others besides them, such as Epicurus. Now, Epicurus would teach something that we actually find twice in the New Testament. Epicurus basically said, here's the philosophy. Everybody's going to die, including you. Live it up while you're here. All the pleasure you want to enjoy, do it. And whatever you want to do, appreciate no restrictions. On one occasion, didn't the Lord, in fact, speak about a certain rich man who, in fact, was a fool? And after his barns brought forth so much, remember what he said? Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. For thou hast many goods laid up for many years. Luke 12, verses 15 and following. We see it, of course, appearing again in the book of Acts. But why don't we transition past Epicurus, because he wasn't the most famous of those philosophers of Greece. Consider with me for a moment Socrates. Again, we often ask our students to at least know something about what he taught. Socrates... Urge the need for each person to think individually. Don't just trust what others tell you. You think and reason for yourself. By the way, don't you and I find the New Testament urging that basic consideration? After all, what was said in Acts 17, 11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were solved. Each of us at judgment shall give account of ourselves, Romans 14, 12 tells us. And thus, we must think individually, understanding the fact that God demands of me. In the same way, of course, He will demand of you. Well, that idea, you see, had some roots that would encourage people to accept it when the gospel was preached with that individualistic thrust. But not only Socrates, what about Plato? Plato? One of Plato's great ideas was each person needs to appreciate a moral standard, an anchor of morality. Think morally, he would say. Did Jesus teach us all to be concerned about morals and ethics? Now, I'm not any means saying that Jesus is on par with Plato. He's far greater than Plato ever was. For Plato taught some things that aren't exactly right. But don't you suppose it's true he at least prepared some soil with an interest in moral matters so that when Jesus came and taught the truth on those subjects, that at least there were some who would have more of an ear to accept it. Did Jesus say in Matthew 7 verse 12, that great appreciable golden rule about the nature of doing to others as you would have them doing to you? So Jesus, you see, had some very great interest in morals, and certainly His New Testament still does. What about the last one, Aristotle? Now, Aristotle taught more than anyone else about a great interest in truth. There is truth, absolute truth. Now, again, I'm not to say at all that Aristotle was on par with Jesus. The Lord is far greater than Aristotle ever was but with Aristotle's emphasis on truth, Jesus took that to an appreciation he could say, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Jesus, of course, would speak that I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. Thus, we'd at least find the Greek society preparing philosophically for someone who would be interested in morals, someone who would be interested in truth, and someone who would be interested in an individualistic emphasis on all of that. What a beautiful preparation. You'll notice as we close that particular slide, I find it intriguing that the sermons that you and I read in the book of Acts, in every single time we find an emphasis, whether it be by Stephen, whether it be by Paul, whether it be by Peter, an emphasis on morals, an emphasis on truth, and an emphasis on individual response. In the sermon on Pentecost, a great example of that. For instance, in verse thirty-six of that chapter, Peter could say, "Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ." And thus, he urged them individually to respond. And about three thousand of them did. They obeyed the gospel that day. Acts two forty-one. Notice the characteristic of truth. You killed him. This is a fact of history. You can't deny it. It's what took place. And thus, in light of the truth and the moral conundrum in which they found themselves, they cried out, what shall we do? And Peter told them, repent and be baptized. But in some ways, the Greek society had prepared for an emphasis on all three of those things. What about number six? What else was true during those periods of 430 years that would bring about at least some value to the New Testament era? What about engineering? Maybe that's not one that would have first come to mind. May I offer some thoughts? The finest engineering society that the ancient world had ever known at least in some of its particulars, was in the Roman Empire. Rome had the best road system the world had ever known up until then. I find it rather amazing that some of the roads the Roman Empire built are still in existence and in use today, over 2,000 years later. We can't build roads in America. that's going to last near that long. But the Romans did it. In many ways, they were masters of several interesting features of engineering. Speaking about the road system, when the Lord then urged His apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel, how were they going to get there? They could walk on those nice prepared Roman roads, or they could ride chariots on those nicely prepared Roman roads to go all over the known empire of the world preaching the gospel. I find it an interesting correlation to notice in Colossians one twenty three. Paul could say the gospel had been preached to every creature under heaven. Don't you suppose those roads helped in accomplishing that? Don't you suppose those road systems of ancient Rome assisted in that? They certainly did. And one of the things then, no doubt, that made the fullness of time when our Master came was exactly the engineering available in the days of the Roman Empire. But quickly beyond that, what about the religious freedom the Roman Empire emphasized? Now you and I will recall some of the empires that preceded the Roman one were empires that basically made ultimatums of worshipping certain gods. It is a rather beautiful thing to consider that in the Roman Empire, for all the problems that empire had, one of the things you would have to admit was that they encouraged religious freedom. In the early days of the Christian system, they did not persecute Christianity. In fact, it would not be until much later that the persecution of Rome on the Christians would actually arrive. But in those early days, under the banner of religious freedom, Paul could go everywhere preaching. And so could Peter and the others. In fact, don't you find it interesting, at one point in the book of Acts, when Paul's life was somewhat threatened, he said, "'I appeal to Caesar.'" Acts chapter 24 and 25. In other words, then under the protection afforded by the Roman government, the Roman government paid the way for this preacher to go to Rome and preach. I've always found that remarkable. The Roman government paid the expenses of Paul to go and preach in Rome. I say that to say then that the religious freedom granted by and upheld by the Roman Empire was a part of what prepared the way and made the early spread of Christianity so great. It's rather remarkable in Acts 8 verse 4 that those early Christians went everywhere preaching the Word. Religious freedom permitted it, and in fact even encouraged it. One by one we've looked at a number of features that took place in that 430 years, preparing the way for the coming of the Christ as the fullness of time. Number eight is this one earlier in the lesson tonight I mentioned that there was something that was often found in the New Testament but not found at all in the Old it was the synagogues but you know there is something else that falls in that same category all over the New Testament we read about Pharisees and Sadducees and yet we don't see them at all in the Old Testament not a single mention of any of them Where did they come from? What, in fact, led to the arrival of and the rising of these groups that would be known as Pharisees on the one hand and Sadducees on the other? Because whatever it was that led to them, it seems, must have occurred in that period of 430 years, and it brought about that which would be a basis for the events we see within the pages of the New Testament. On that slide, I've asked you to note, it again takes us back to the captivity. When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, destroying that temple along with it, again, 2 Kings 25, 9, it brings us to note this, in the years that followed, there arose differing religious groups who had a different perspective. Some of them were exceedingly loyal to the law of Moses. Others were not quite so much. They were more loyal to the oral law, the oral traditions, not so much the written ones. And that distinction would lead primarily to two different groups. Those groups, we then see the New Testament, and they, of course, had some very notable disagreements. And Paul made use of them, didn't he? Do you recall in Acts chapter 23, when he was basically being questioned before the authorities? Both Pharisees and Sadducees were there, the text says... And Paul began a discussion in which they were arguing with one another and forgot that he was even there. Don't you find that a bit humorous? That's to say on that slide, I've asked you to appreciate the Sadducees tended to be the wealthier group. The aristocrats, if you please. They had more of the governmental power. And as such, they tended to be the ones that controlled both the priesthood and the temple. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were those who had more of a great appreciation for and understanding of the law that God had delivered, the power, you see, of the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, you and I remember some notable differences. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. But the Pharisees did accept those things. It is those differences, again, that Paul used more than once to his advantage. As we close that slide, I would simply say the Lord was well aware of those differences and even addressed them Himself in Matthew chapter 23. So far tonight, we've looked at eight ideas or eight entities that were very prominent matters that arose in that period of 430 years that prepared the way for the coming of the Christ, that prepared the way for the fullness of time. Perhaps there's one final thing that we should note about the timing of the Lord's coming. I stated earlier, He didn't just come happenstantially or accidentally when He did. He came at the right time. The Old Testament had prophesied exactly when He would come. In fact, we find in the book of Daniel that it was laid out rather clearly. And therefore, one other thing might be added He came at the time to fulfill prophecy. He came at the time that the years would add up to exactly what the Old Testament prophets had said they would. And with that, we close our lesson like this. It's a rather fascinating and faith-building study to consider again the movement of God through thousands of years of preparation. In this case tonight, we've learned that after the writing of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, we find again... A few hundred years that passed, but they were critical years preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. And indeed, when those preparations were made, just as the providence of God would know they would be, the Lord came in due time, Romans 5 verse 6. He came in the fullness of time, Galatians 4 verse 4. And when He did, the earth, of course, would never be the same. He would ultimately die, of course, for the sins of humanity and put in place the perfect gospel of Jesus Christ, the perfect covenant to which one and all would be invited. And so tonight that invitation is still extended. If you or I need to come to that gospel calling of invitation tonight, may we do it with haste and may we do it with urgency. As we've studied this evening, God's providence is rather great the orchestrating of the affairs of hundreds of years of history to make the fullness of time a reality. But you know, we don't know when the Lord will come again. That first coming, again, much can be said about it. But the New Testament's clear there is no signs for the second coming. None of us know. Mark thirteen thirty two will remind us even the angels in heaven don't know. The critical point is to always be ready to always be watchful, to always be vigilant. This evening, if you or I are not ready, may we not leave this building unprepared. If you have never obeyed the gospel, won't you believe in Jesus as a Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God and to be baptized? If you'll do that, He'll add you to the church, forgiving your sins and allowing you to proudly wear the name Christian. If you have known that way of life, but you've strayed from it, if those matters are known to others, you need to make sure your repentance is known to them as well. Won't you tonight do that? Make a statement of acknowledgement in terms of repentance and confession and allow us to pray to God in celebration of your repentance and making observation of His welcoming you back to a wonderful state of faithfulness. If tonight we could be of assistance in either of these ways, or merely as offering prayers of encouragement in some way of facing an issue in your life, won't you come while well, together we stand and sing this selected song?